Part two of chapter six of the second volume of The Life of Reason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gabriel V. The Life of Reason by George Santayana. Chapter six, Free Society, part two. Side note, it's possible ideality. Fame as a noble mind conceives and desires it, is not embodied in a monument, a biography, or the repetition of a strange name by strangers. It consists in the immortality of a man's work, his spirit, his efficacy, and the perpetual rejuvenation of his soul in the world. When Horace, no model of magnanimity, wrote his exegy monumentum, he was not thinking that the pleasure he would continue to give would remind people of his trivial personality, which indeed he never particularly celebrated and which had much better lie buried with his bones. He was thinking, of course, of that pleasure itself, thinking that the delight, half lyric, half sarcastic, which those delicate cameos had given him to carve, would be perennially renewed in all who retraced them. Nay, perhaps, we may not go too far in saying that even that impersonal satisfaction was not the deepest he felt. The deepest, very likely, flowed from the immortality, not of his monument, but of the subject and passion it commemorated. That tenderness, I mean, and that disillusion with mortal life, which rendered his verse immortal, he had expressed, and in expressing appropriated, some recurring human moods, some mocking renunciations, and he knew that his spirit was immortal, being linked and identified with that portion of the truth. He had become a little spokesman of humanity, uttering what all experience repeats more or less articulately, and even if he should cease to be honored in men's memories, he would continue to be unwittingly honored and justified in their lives. What we may conceive to have come in this way, even with a Horace's apprehension, is undoubtedly what has attached many nobler souls to fame. With an eversion of moral derivations, which all mythical expression involves, we speak of fame as the reward of genius. Whereas in truth genius, the imaginative dominion of experience, is its own reward in fame, is but a foolish image by which its worth is symbolized. When the Virgin in the Magnificat says, Behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed, the psalmist surely means to express a spiritual exaltation exempt from vanity. He merely translates into a rhetorical figure the fact that what had been first revealed to Mary would also bless all generations that the church should in consequence deem and pronounce her blessed is an incident describing but not creating the unanimity in the religious joys fame is thus the outward sign or recognition of an inward representative authority residing in genius or good fortune an authority in which lies the whole worth of fame those will substantially remember and honor us who keep our ideals and we shall live on in those ages whose experience we have anticipated. Free society differs from that which is natural and legal precisely in this, that it does not cultivate relations 
which in the last analysis are experienced and material, but turns exclusively to the unanimities and meanings, to collaborations in an ideal world. The basis of free society is, of course, natural, as we said, but free society has ideal goals. Spirits cannot touch save by becoming unanimous. At the same time, public opinion, reputation, and impersonal sympathy reinforce only very general feelings, and reinforce them vaguely. And as the inner play of sentiment becomes precise, it craves more specific points of support or comparison. It is in creatures of our own species that we chiefly scent the aroma of inward sympathy. Because it is they that are visibly moved on the same occasions as ourselves. And it is to those among our fellow men who share our special haunts and habits that we feel more precise affinities. Though the ground for such feeling is animal contact and contagion, its deliverance does not revert to those natural accidents, but concerns a represented sympathy in represented souls. Friendship, springing from accidental association, terminates in a consciousness of ideal and essential agreement. Side note, comradeship. Comradeship is a form of friendship still akin to general sociability and gregariousness. When men are in the same boat together, when a common anxiety, occupation, or sport unites them, they feel their human kinship in an intensified form without any greater personal affinity subsisting between them. The same effect is produced by a common estrangement from the rest of society. For this reason, comradeship lasts no longer than the circumstances that bring it about. Its constancy is proportionate to the monotony of people's lives and minds. There is a lasting bond among schoolfellows because no one can become a boy again and have a new set of playmates. There is a persistent comradeship with one's countrymen, especially abroad, because seldom is a man pliable and polygot enough to be at home among foreigners, or really to understand them. There is an inevitable comradeship with men of the same breeding or profession, however bad these may be, because habits soon monopolize the man. Nevertheless, a greater buoyancy, a longer youth, a richer experience, would break down all these limits of fellowship. Such clingings to the familiar are three parts dread of the unfamiliar, and want of resource in its presence, for one part in them of genuine loyalty. Plasticity loves new molds because it can fill them, but for a man of sluggish mind and bad manners there is decidedly no place like home. Side note, external conditions of friendship. Though comradeship is an accidental bond, it is the condition of ideal friendship, for the ideal in all spheres is nothing but the accidental confirming itself and generating its own standard. Men must meet to love, and many other accidents besides conjunction must conspire to make a true friendship possible, in order that friendship may fulfill the conditions even of comradeship. It is requisite that the friends have the same social status so that they may live at ease together and have congenial tastes. 
they must further have enough community of occupation and gifts to give each an appreciation of the other's faculty. For qualities are not complementary unless they are qualities of the same substance. Nothing must be an actual in either friend that is not potential in the other. Side note, identity in sex required. For this reason, among others, friends are generally of the same sex. For when men and women agree, it is only in their conclusions. Their reasons are always different, so that while intellectual harmony between men and women is easily possible, its delightful and magic quality lies precisely in the fact that it does not arise from mutual understanding, but is a conspiracy of alien essences, and a kissing, as it were, in the dark. As man's body differs from woman's in sex and strength, so his mind differs from hers in quality and function. They can cooperate, but can never fuse. The human race, in its intellectual life, is organized like the bees. The masculine soul is a worker, sexually atrophied and essentially dedicated to impersonal and universal arts. The feminine is a queen, infinitely fertile, omnipresent in its brooding industry, but passive and abounding in intuitions without method and passions without justice. Friendship with a woman is therefore apt to be more or less than friendship less because there is no intellectual parity, more because even when the relation remains wholly dispassionate, as in respect to old ladies, there is something mysterious and oracular about a woman's mind which inspires a certain instinctive deference and puts it out of the question to judge what she says by masculine standards. She has a kind of civiline intuition and the right to be irrationally a propos. There is a gallantry of the mind which pervades all conversation with a lady, as there is a natural courtesy toward children and mystics. But such a habit of respectful concession, marking as it does an intellectual alienation as profound as that which separates us from the dumb animals, is radically incompatible with friendship. Side note, and in age. Friends, moreover, should have been young together. Much difference in age defeats equality and forbids frankness on many a fundamental subject. It confronts two minds of unlike focus, one nearsighted and without perspective, the other seeing only the background of present things. While comparisons in these respects may be interesting and borrowing sometimes possible, lending the older mind life and the younger mind wisdom. Such intercourse has hardly the value of spontaneous sympathy in which the spark of mutual intelligence flies, as it should almost without words. Contagion is the only source of valid mind reading. You must imitate to understand, and where the plasticity of two minds is not similar, their mutual interpretations are necessarily false. They idealize in their friends whatever they do not invent or ignore, and the friendship 
which should have lived on energies conspiring spontaneously together, dies into conscious appreciation. Side note, constituents of friendship. All these are merely permissive conditions for friendship. Its positive essence is yet to find. How, we may ask, does the vision of general socius humanity become specific in the vision of a particular friend without losing its ideality or reverting to practical values? Of course, individuals might be singled out for the special benefits they may have conferred. But a friend's only gift is himself and friendship is not friendship. It is not a form of free or liberal society if it does not terminate in an ideal possession, in an object loved for its own sake. Such objects can be ideas only, not forces, for forces are subterranean and instrumental things, having only such value as they borrow from their ulterior effects and manifestations. To praise the utility of friendship, as the ancients so often did, and to regard it as a political institution justified, like victory or government by its material results, is to lose one's moral bearings. The value of victory or good government is rather to be found in the fact that, among other things, it might render friendship possible. We are not to look now for what makes friendship useful, but for whatever may be found in friendship, that may lend utility to life. Side note, personal liking. The first note that gives sociability a personal quality and raises the comrade into an incipient friend is doubtless sensuous affinity. Whatever reaction we may eventually make on an impression after it has had time to soak in and to merge in some practical or intellectual habit. Its first assault is always on the senses, and no sense is an indifferent organ. Each has, so to speak, its congenial rate of vibration and gives its stimuli a varying welcome. Little as we may attend to these instinctive hospitalities of sense, they betray themselves in unjustified likes and dislikes, felt for casual persons and things, in the je ne sais quoi that makes instinctive sympathy, voice, manner, aspects, hints of congenial tastes and judgments, a jest in the right key, a gesture marking the right aversions, all these trifles leave behind a pervasive impression. We reject a vision we find indigestible and without congruity to our inner dream. We accept and incorporate another into our private pantheon where it becomes a legitimate figure, however dumb and subsidiary it may remain. In a refined nature, these sensuous premonitions of sympathy are seldom misleading. Liking cannot, of course, grow into friendship overnight, as it might into love. The pleasing impression, even if retained, will lie perfectly passive and harmless in the mind, until new and different impressions follow to deepen the interest at first evoked and to remove its center of gravity altogether from the senses. In love, if the field is clear, a single glimpse may, like Tristan's potion, 
produce a violent and irresistible passion. But in friendship, the result remains more proportionate to the incidental causes. Discrimination is preserved. Jealousy and exclusiveness are avoided. That vigilant, besetting, insatiable affection, so full of doubts and torments, with which the lover follows his object, is out of place here, for the friend has no property in his friend's body, or leisure, or residual ties. He accepts what is offered and what is acceptable, and the rest he leaves in peace. He is distinctly not his brother's keeper, for the society of friends is free. End of chapter 6, part 2